Today, we talk some philosophical thoughts on chefs, how much restaurants actually cost, and there's a rant to go along with that, a new restaurant in Salt Lake City, Virgilio Martinez's new spot in Peru, and Harvard Business Review talks about restaurants. Coming up. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name's Justin Kana. This is episode 54 of The Emulsion. If you're new here, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I'm navigating my career as a professional chef. And then I kind of give a little bit of insight that I've gained after my almost nine years in this industry to you guys to hopefully uh, give you a uh, educated opinion on some of these stories that are coming out out there. I gotta give a shout out to our sponsor first, that is you guys, at least the ones of you that are generous enough to support me on Patreon. That starts as little as $1 a month and it doesn't seem like a lot, but it definitely does help me get closer to doing this internet thing full time. So if you wanna sponsor this show, you can do so for just a dollar on patreon.com slash justincana. I would really, really appreciate it. The second personal plug here, if you're interested in signing up for my bi-weekly newsletter, I include discounted gear that I find or get offered, uh, any articles that I'm enjoying or have covered here on this show, The Emulsion, new uh, videos that I've released or inspiration for you through quotes or photos or new dish ideas. It's all included in that as a way for me to kind of bring value to your inbox. I'm not really wanting it to be spammy. Uh, I just want it to be filled with great stuff for you every single time you get a notification from me. So if you want to sign up for that, go ahead and check out justincona.com slash newsletter and you can take it from there. Today's beverage, some of you guys that were logged onto the live stream saw it, hopefully. I forget my camera angle sucks today. Uh, Sugar-free Red Bull. I don't know. It's not super inspiring, but uh, I needed two. So I ended up buying a four-pack, and I just have some sitting around. And I don't know why I went sugar-free. I don't really even like the taste of it that much. It just makes me feel better about not drinking a giant sugar bomb, even though maybe I'll, I'm going to get cancer later. Uh, first up, this story that I wanted to cover is from one of those industry websites that kind of prides itself in getting us gullible chefs to click on the headline. The article is called, Why Some Chefs Fall Short, and it's from David Myers Associates. That is the name of the website. They are kind of like an industry happenings, uh, but more on the kind of like, they would go to the National Restaurant Association uh, conferences and stuff like that. They're, they're more on like the hotel and bigger corporate side of things. But it's written by this uh, certified master chef named uh, David Huglier, which is hilarious because his last name for me, the first time I looked at it, spelled huge liar the first time I read it. And I was like, this is not going to be a good article. But regardless, let's see what this article has to say. So, quote, Recently, I was asked how important it is for a chef to understand the foundational principles of sound cooking. That seems like a crazy question akin to asking a lawyer if they have all the knowledge of the law or an architect if he knew how to construct a building. After all, it seems logical that every chef should know the basics of cooking, end quote. Now, being, an, being a certified master chef, he also judges all these competitions. So he continues to say, quote, we find that in almost every case where a competitor falls short, it is, without cooking it is with the cooking basics. I find this strange anomaly in a range of menu and food combinations throughout the industry. I see plates of food with little flowers, foam, or perfect mystery dots surrounding plates in an artful arrangement, all leaving me hungry for the smell of aromatics, fat rendered crisp in a perfectly grilled lamb chop or potatoes that actually taste like potatoes, end quote. Then they do a 
uh, romantic old chef explanation of, uh, what do they say? I think it's caramelized mirepoix, fish stock, the importance of being able to make all of these things. And he continues on to say, quote, don't get me wrong, I am a proponent of modernistic cooking as many of the approaches and methods are very useful to the chef in any kitchen. Slow cooking, sous vide, and careful use of natural food extract can benefit the, moderate, the modern chef but not when it overshadows taste and sound cooking principles. For a serious student of cooking, skipping over the many years of developing skills through breakfast cookery, working pantries, butchering, washing pots, sauteing, bake shop, and pastry, working the grill and five stations is a grave mistake. And then underlined here, quote, if one does not practice with the craft with commitment to redundancy, they will never excel. If you have, if you have, if you have learned, not just in the classroom, but with a streetwise experience in quality kitchens working among the most talented on the team, you will prevail in any job market. You will also cook food with exceptional taste and wholesome preparation as priorities." End quote. That was exhausting. So you folks can go ahead and read the rest of the article if you so choose. A lot of it repeats itself quite a bit. You can kind of see the uh, direction that the article is going just by hopefully the little bits of it that I, that I read. And he absolutely references other, other industries. He talks about being a student forever. And honestly, I was thinking that I would hate this article. But when I personally think of Certified Master Chef, I think of someone that's completely opposite from someone like me. There's, they wear chef coats and toques all the time. They're all about big banquets and hotel cooking. They, like I said, judge these competitions that are all about big, grandiose platters and all that stuff. But there's a lot of this article that I was reading and I was kind of like nodding my head as I was reading it. And I was like, okay, you write, you write at a, at a couple of these points. So let's dive a little deeper. You should always be learning. That's something that, I'm a huge advocate for it. I wouldn't make the content that I do on this channel if I didn't believe that. But, and you should also be open-minded and you use history as a frame of reference for yourself. And the first thing that came to mind to me when I was reading this article is our last guest here on the show, Spencer. He, uh, he texted me earlier this week asking about desserts for his next event. And I was like, what are some pastry chefs that you admire? And he's like, I don't really know any pastry chefs. And so then my next follow-up question is after that is, why are you serving dessert then? Right, like I had this fantastic meal in Paris at this restaurant called Cam, where they do like 45 people at a time, and they just have a staff of like five people, and it's an a la carte restaurant. But the thing about it is, there's no dessert on the menu. We got to the end of our meal, and we were like, especially me, the dessert huge sweet tooth guy, I was like, dessert menu, please. And they were like, no, sorry, we don't do dessert here. And in a city like Paris, that works because we literally hopped into a cab and went to get these amazing crepes afterwards. But my point being. Certified master chefs come from a place where knowing these old school classic French techniques is absolutely pivotal for their success because their metrics by which they're judged is based on your demigloss and your tournée skills, right? Like you should go to India and tell me how those skills benefit you in any way. There, you would 100% get laughed at the, out, the, out of the restaurant for not having a basic knowledge of blending spices or making breads or using a tandoor. So, let's take it to a different industry, right? Like music, if you truly believe that music, I truly believe at least that music has the closest correlation of all the arts to food. Like some people compare it to painting, some people compare it to like stage performance. Music to me is the place that I reference the most. So for example, 
I was listening to Drake when I was writing this show. I think about what would have happened if Drake was told by the gatekeepers of his industry that music, his music sucked because he didn't incorporate syncopation or time signature changes or understand how to write the song in the key of C or even taking it a step further, like, Drake, you don't really know how to play the piano. I'm really sorry we can't have you on this track. Like, the question should be stripped back to what are the basics, right? Like, who determines what those basics actually are? And when do you get to that level where you're going to say that you understand the basics, right? Like, that Korean monk that they cover on Chef's Table probably can't make a hollandaise sauce, but why should she have to know how? She can probably make, like, 500 other sauces that can go with your eggs. I just think this article is written with a bad taste in the author's mouth for the next generation. And I certainly appreciate, it, like, this mind shift that he's talking about in this style of article where it pushes you to think a little bit differently, but it's honestly the last thing that young people want to hear, regardless of whether or not it's true, right? Every young person wants to prove their parents wrong, whether, whether like, regardless of who those parents are. It can be your actual parents, it can be the chefs that you've worked for, but a lot of chefs are actually like three times worse than normal young people. We love proving people wrong and doing things that people don't think that we can do. So it's probably the wrong message to send, and maybe it's why I am slightly covering this story in a bad light, but I can firmly say that I have a strong foundational knowledge of classic French technique. It's what I grew up cooking, but at least in the industry, not when I was a kid. Like, the beginning stages of my industry was modern American and French cooking, and then a little bit of Scandinavian in there. But the, the, that only came from learning how to be a good line cook. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it's not because I wanted to be a good chef, because that didn't motivate me enough. I wanted to be the best line cook in the world. And that was the carrot for me. That was the thing that you could dangle in front of my face, and I would be like, what do I have to do to get that? And the answers kept leading to things like you need to learn how to butcher. Boom, we're putting this langoustine hollandaise on your station. Figure it out, right? It, he, puts a, he puts a great line towards the end of the article that goes, uh, quote, the unlike the medical field, finance, or law profession, there are different schools of thought as it relates to cooking. A chef's educational and empower, employment background should include the influence of cultures that teach the sound foundations of cooking. Students from schools and apprenticeship programs that are globally recognized show best. These cooks and chefs who train in top establishments will always have the edge with their philosophy regarding the culinary arts well-grounded in quality, end quote. So for him, yes, being a certified master chef means being well-rounded because bringing those extra quirks to the table will make your presentation stand out from everybody else's. But what about the Japanese sushi chef who spends years perfecting the rice? Like, are you going to go to them and tell them that they, quote, fall short because they don't know how to make a clear veal sauce? To me, it goes back to that rant I've gone on before when I say that proper is just the way that you think that it should be done. Uh, if you go to NYC, go, go to New York City right now and ask any line cook to make a hollandaise, and you'll get at least four different ways like that they're going to do it. Some people are going to do it in a double boiler. Some people are just going to do it in a pot on the stove. Like some people might serve it up as a fluid gel, and some people are going to put it out of an ISI gun. The the article's only photo is a stock photo of the Escoffier book, if that tells you anything about the author of this article. He does do an incredible job of covering his ass and putting a bunch of disclaimers in this article to make sure that people like me can't completely rip it apart, uh, even saying in the headline that, quote, some chefs, like if he put an umbrella over all chefs, it would be an instant turnoff for me. 
I just hate to see some kid who's super inspired by like Nepalese food to go down this path, uh, like to read this article and to go down this path that he has to learn how to make like that you have to learn how to make concasse tomatoes instead of learning like learning about the basics that you're actually passionate about. Does that make sense? It's not to say that it isn't bad because that's where kind of fusion comes from too. Like if you're super passionate about Nepalese food and you learn all these classics about French food and then come back and apply those principles, but that's another story. What are your thoughts on learning the basics first and what are the basics and what are some resources that either you're currently using or things that you found valuable when you were first starting? I would love to know in the comments because I think that would actually help out some people that are either just starting or going down a different path, whether it's you learned Japanese food first and now you're really getting into French food. And that you guys should comment at me. Next up, a rant from someone other than me, Jay Rayner, who is a journalist from the UK. He put out a piece called, Oi, you, yes you, the one whining about the cost of the restaurants I review. Read this, a one-size-fits-all response. So this is hilarious. I'm just gonna read uh, these individual points because it's pretty short and they're just so good. So he starts by categorizing the typical comments that he gets uh, on his restaurant reviews and then he'll give the responses. So first I'm gonna read the comments that he will get, at least the categories that he groups them in, and then I'll next read the responses that he gives. So first he says, I can make this at home for a 10th of the price. So for people that say that, he his rebuttal is, firstly, unless you are a professional chef, you probably couldn't. And if you actually were a professional chef, you wouldn't begrudge the cost of it. In any case, if you made it at home, you wouldn't have the 20% VAT, plus the cost of the building, the utilities, and the staff to both cook it for you and to bring it to you. Presumably, as you care about your cost, you'd want the people who work in the restaurant to be paid a reasonable wage for their labor. Presumably, you'd want quality ingredients and not the cheapest of the cheap. Despite what cynical people like you think, restaurants are not a license to print money. They are brutally tough businesses, as the number of closures in 2018 has proved. One of the major problems in British consumers like you who begrudge paying a reasonable price on the deal is the experience. To be able to do it at home, if you really feel like perhaps you could just stay there and shut up while the rest of us get on with leading bigger and more interesting lives. End quote. So savage. Next <laughs> comment is, there is something obscene about spending this sort of money in a restaurant where there aren't people feeding themselves from food banks, while there are pe feeding people themselves from food banks. And his response? No, there isn't. Poverty is a terrible thing. I've written about it in detail. And he links up an article. I've talked to people who use food banks and their stories are awful, but the fact that some people who are not on the poverty line eat in restaurants does not make the situation worse for those who are. Poverty is a function of an unequal and dysfunctional economic system. That's what needs to be sorted, not the price of a ribeye steak in a restaurant. And it goes on. Next comment. I could never afford to spend that much money in a restaurant. How dare a so-called left-wing newspaper give column inches to such things? His response. I'm sorry you don't earn enough to visit all the restaurants I write about. I love the thought of handmade shoes and flying across the Atlantic first class. I don't earn enough money to be able to afford either of those things, but that doesn't mean that I don't immediately think they should exist. A lot of people can't afford all the restaurants I write about, but they still like reading about them. It provides vicarious pleasure. As to the view that the observer is betraying its values by reporting on such things that aren't dirt cheap, again, what utter bollocks. Does that mean we shouldn't write about cars or holidays, theater or fashion or new tech, or is that different? Let me be clear. Some restaurants do take the piss money-wise, and when they do, I say so. 
There's a great difference between price and value. I have paid 400 pounds of my own money for a meal that I thought was worth it. I purchased memories. That may not be the kind of memories you want, but they are the kind that I want. But I have also spent 20 pounds on a meal that I thought was a ripoff, and I have said so. The issue is never the spending of money on food in restaurants. It's always what money buys, end quote. So hopefully that gave you some interesting rebuttals for anyone that exclaims that the food is too expensive or that the meal isn't worth it. I really, really enjoy discussing perspective, so this was really refreshing. And especially from someone like Jay Rayner, who is so well-spoken, uh, I'm definitely going to cite this article going forward for anyone who's interested in talking smack about expensive meals and, I guess, just where you should spend your money in general. Judgment is never okay, at least in my opinion. So next up, a in new restaurant news, very quickly from Arturo, a, at a Arturo N14, one of you folks. He wanted me to give a shout out to uh, Pretty Bird Chicken. He is a manager there and listened to the show and for some reason asked me to cover it. It is a hot sauce chickens. It is a hot chicken spot in Salt Lake City. I'm looking at their website right now and it's seriously the best restaurant website I've ever seen. It's very clean. It's very easy to read. It's only one page. You can't click around it at all. It's just a photo of their food, an email address, their hours, where they're located, the menu, and the social links. That's it. All in one page. Uh, it's crazy. But they do hot chicken. It seems super tasty. I love hot chicken. It seems like a really focused concept in Salt Lake City, an area that probably doesn't have a lot of other hot chicken around, but I'll give you that free marketing, Arturo. This one's on me. I should charge for these shout outs, huh? I appreciate the hustle though. The second new restaurant that I wanna cover, uh, more on the fine dining side of the spectrum, is Virgilio Martinez's new restaurant, Meal, located in Cusco, Peru. So 20 guests per night is the uh, cap that they're thinking about, the concept that they're thinking about. Six days a week though, I thought that was really interesting. It actually opens today, the 27th. Today is the 27th, right? Yes. It opens today, so it's super exciting that I get to cover this story. But the concept is, quote, the restaurant will highlight ancestral cuisines of the Andes. And like Central, the breakout Lima restaurant that landed Martinez on the world's 50 best list and the international spotlight, it will have a menu inspired by the altitude at which the ingredients grow. But where Central takes diners through different altitudes course by course, Meal is laser focused on what can grow at the towering height of its own setting, 11,500 11, feet above sea level, end quote. Uh, another interesting aspect is that this meal will start at 1 p.m., which was really interesting for me to hear because that's where this full experience comes into play of they let the guests explore the grounds, they are taking in the sights from the landscape, and the plan is to also use this as an outlet for the research team that Virgilio has. So, Mat Mater Iniciativa, Iniciativa. Is the name of that is is that word how you pronounce it? Well, they'll that's his uh, kind of taller. If you're familiar with how uh, Ferran did it with El Bui, that's a research uh, facility. But they will be using this uh, meal space to test out new ideas and invite out students and researchers and host events with other chefs, all that good stuff. The menu looks fascinating. Uh, it's weird, just a, a, exactly what you would expect if you're familiar with the food at Central. Um, I'm going to read off a couple of dishes for you folks. Uh, Freeze-dried potato chunyon, chunyo, corn, and then just ingredients that I can't even pronounce. It's crazy. There's a dish called the Andean Forest, the diversity of corn. One, one dish is called Extreme Altitude. The uh, dessert is oka tuber, cocoa leaf, cacao, and sancha inchi. 
It's very, very strange. It's uh, if you're familiar with his food at all, you'll 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 know that he's a huge fan of working with these really indigenous. Air, we would call it heirloom in the U.S., but it's just stuff that's always just grown there, and people have to figure out how to make it delicious. It's very, very similar to what's going on in Scandinavia, but I'm going to link up the article so you guys can read it if you're interested in checking it out. Uh, but would you make the trek out to Peru for a meal inspired by altitude? I really, really enjoyed reading about this concept because it takes what's trendy, what people appreciate, this kind of like using what's around you, but it also makes it have substance through his research and what he's trying to do for the country as a whole. And creativity in making something that you can make into a meal that people actually want to sit down and eat. Uh, but I think about all the people that saw what Rene did at Noma and they thought they could just go back to where they live and use what's around them and achieve that kind of success. Uh, a lot of people did it successfully and it's not a bad model, it works. But when I hear about a restaurant like this, I get excited, not just thinking it's like a Noma ripoff in Peru, even though it kind of maybe is. <laughs> nothing is new. Nothing is new. Steal like an artist is a real thing. Creativity is remixing, uh, taking things from other cultures and areas of the world and different industries and infusing them into what you care about. Uh, and that's what this is. And that's why I think this is inspiring. And I would absolutely, absolutely love to visit. So last up, for those of us that didn't make it to Harvard, Harvard Business Review came out with a piece called, quote, how the best restaurants in the world balance innovation and consistency, end quote. And this doesn't come from some dude sitting behind a desk. Daniel Ospina is the author, and he actually worked at Fat Duck for a while on the innovation side. And the way that he talks about restaurants in the article definitely shows that he is not just a journalist, but has some knowledge of the industry and what it's like to work in a kitchen. I'm going to link up the article in the show notes so you can read it next if you like. There's a ton of references uh, about restaurants past. So he talks about El Bui and Austria Francescana and Fat Duck back in like the 90s and how they all push innovation through things like test kitchens and R&D labs. And de I definitely wanted to be an R&D chef for a while. I'm pretty sure that's not a shock to some of you that have been watching my stuff for a while that I wanted to do that. But it just didn't involve enough guest interaction for me to want to pursue it. The idea of being like locked up in a kitchen where you develop all these dishes and then you kind of like push it onto the line and then other people get to serve it to people, that sucked the life out of it for me. But the punchline being R&D is an expensive upfront. It, it is expensive upfront, but it can 100% pay off in things like brand partnerships and increased revenue through people wanting to come and try that new crazy dish that you just created or opening up new spaces and etc. The last line of the article wraps it up in a nice little bow. He says, quote, the most, anticip the, the most highly acclaimed restaurants embed creativity and learning across the organization by creating spaces and processes for both collective input and focused development. They show that a culture of precision and attention to detail can coexist with constant reinvention and by leveraging this core competence to achieve prestigious rankings, partnerships, and associated businesses and generate growth, end quote. So hopefully you check that out. Hopefully you get some insight from it. Uh, it's stuff that I more or less already knew because like I said, I wanted to be an R&D chef for such a long time that I, I knew the ins and outs of that. But if you're curious about restaurants that have a program like that and that is something that really speaks to you, I would 100% recommend uh, checking that out. Last up, a question uh, from one of you that actually left uh, me yesterday, that you, you guys left it on my pop-up video yesterday. If you haven't watched that video yet, you should definitely do that next. Uh, Luis Arias asks, can you please make a video on what it's like to be a chef in your current city? What cuisine is most popular and what does it take to be successful? Answer to your first question, no, I will not make a video about that. 
Maybe this is a video about that. Maybe I will make that video one day, but I'm gonna take a stab at answering that question now for those of you that don't know. I live in Seattle, that is my city right now. I've been here for just over a year, so I'm still hesitant to call it my city. I love it here. There's just this weird thing in Seattle because there's such, been such a huge influx of people over the last 36 to 48 months or so. The locals are kind of iffy about all the transplants, but there's more transplants than locals now. That being said, the city has some incredible diversity. I can get tacos and dumplings and ramen and pasta, all really delicious in its own right, but that's unique for me coming from a city like Bergen. That was the city I was living in Norway before this, which when I was there, they had no ramen places like at all. Uh, but it's definitely something that I found to be kind of confusing when people talk about Pacific Northwest inspired food. It doesn't really hold that much weight for me because no one really knows what Pacific Northwest food is. We have some really incredible product. The vegetables here are some of the best I've ever worked with. And we have the ocean that gives us the majority of either fish that's just caught off the coast or Washington oysters or the majority of all the Alaskan fish and shellfish comes through here first. Um, but there's no like defined Pacific Northwest cuisine. It's this huge melting pot and I love that. Fusion is interesting. But there's also so much capital here, right? The two richest men in the world live here and have their companies here in Seattle, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. It's just insane money. So that also helps someone like me who does food on the more expensive fine dining end of the spectrum but it doesn't always mean there's like Lambos rolling around on the streets. The market is very conservative. The most expensive tasting menu in town right now, I think is like $175. That's the price that we did on our kitchen table last night at our pop-up. Um, if that gives you a frame of reference, if you go to like anywhere in the Bay Area, the next up tasting, like it's not outrageous to see a $245 tasting menu, right? So there's no defined popular cuisine. Seattle likes different. There's a spot up the road that does udon and then right next door they do Polish dumplings and they're both really tasty. So if anything, the coffee culture here is what is kind of like stands out. And I think a lot of people know Seattle for coffee. But for me to be successful here, you have to be really honest with your food. Seattle researches everything. We are a very tech focused city. There's a lot of tech startups here. So if you try to front something, you're gonna get found out and that's great. I, I'm like, I'm all about transparency and truth in food, but it's, it's also something that I've realized is that we are in the customer service capital of the world here in Seattle. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they all have offices here. So it's so underrated to have good service here. And because so many of the restaurants uh, that are in Seattle and have been in Seattle for a long time are on the casual side, there's like a lack of that fine dining inspired service and a place that capitalizes on that is gonna win in the city for sure, as long as the food's good as well to back all of that up. But other than that, uh, the only gripe I have, I wish the chef community was a little bit tighter here in Seattle. A lot of people kind of keep to themselves or have this kind of like weird clicks where they only hang out with like a certain couple chefs. The community as a whole doesn't really come together over anything other than to kind of like ego boost each other. Um, I found that different in Atlanta. Uh, I found that really inspiring in Atlanta, at least on my trip uh, a couple weeks ago. Everyone from every restaurant is kind of a friend to each other. And it's this weird myth in restaurants that you have to be the best restaurant and like screw everyone else, I'm gonna be the best restaurant. But in reality, and my girlfriend is a big fan of saying this, we need other chefs, right? Like you can make the best Ethiopian food on the planet, but I don't wanna eat Ethiopian food every day, right? Like I need to go eat pasta the next night and then sushi the next night and then I'll come visit you next month. But for some reason, people in Seattle are obsessed with people coming to them as much as possible uh, instead of kind of like doing what they do best and then that will attract the guests at a different kind of interval. 
So, Luis, I hope that kind of gives you a little bit of insight into what I think of when I think about uh, a city and what makes it special food-wise. Um, yeah, it's just some stuff that I'm thinking about as we're, as where I'm kind of going forward in in the city that I'm still relatively new to. So switching gears real quick, our non-industry story of the week, I'm actively trying to not mention anything that I tweet out. Uh, seriously, uh, folks, if you really want to keep up with everything plus stuff that's not cooking with me, I'm tweeting a lot these days, uh, and I'm going to do my darndest to, to make the non-industry story not something that I've tweeted. Uh, but regardless, this story will only apply to you if you're interested in management. I'm going... Uh, from being like the process of going from just an artist to being a manager or a leader or an owner. The author is named Todd Henry. His book that I just discovered is called Herding Tigers. That's herding, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, tigers, like the, the, the big cat. I had the pleasure of finding his stuff through Chase Jarvis's podcast. I don't actually have the book yet. Herding Tigers has its own podcast. But the idea being, and I'm going to reference this to cooking for example's sake, but the idea of herding tigers is that, yes, you're an insanely good line cook or pastry chef. That means you should be able to open a restaurant or pastry shop, right? Eh, wrong. It is an entirely new set of skills to manage and motivate and lead a team of people, especially creative. So what does it take to do that? Herding tigers talks all about it. And I really got a ton of insight through the podcast episode I listened to. I'm definitely going to binge the rest of his content first and maybe pick up the book if I feel like I need it. Um, but it's just something that I found insanely valuable and would like to pass along for you folks, for anyone that's interested in uh, managing a team of creatives like any chef basically does. Uh, again, that's called Herding Tigers by Todd Henry. So that'll do it for this week's show. If you have stories that you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Uh, I'm serious about this one. A lot of you send me a Facebook message or an Instagram DM. If you put it on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion, that's where I search for it before I record the episode. So if it's not there, I probably won't find it. Subscribe if you aren't already, whether it's on a podcasting app or on iTunes or on YouTube. Definitely leave a thumbs up on the video if you're watching in that format or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I really, really appreciate your ears. So thank you so much for listening. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.